Fishing knowledge is dynamic, and we grow with our experience, but sometimes we need to look back at stuff we learned in the beginning and focus on the fundamentals and just keep it simple. We're going to talk about all that on this episode of Fishful Thinker, the podcast. I'm Chad Lachance, and you're listening to Fishful Thinker, the podcast. All things fishful, all the time. Hey guys, Chad Lachance here. Thanks so much for tuning in to this episode of Fishful Thinker, the podcast. I appreciate it very much. Of course, it's always brought to you and me by Sportsman's Warehouse. Check them out at their local store, 136 stores going strong, plus sportsmans.com if there's not one near you. They've been with us since the beginning. We'd appreciate you checking them out. Guys, big week for us here at Fishful Thinker. Lots of stuff going on. The Fishful Tundra is in the shop today getting a whole bunch of work done. And if you're if you're a fan or you've been keeping up with it, it's been an ongoing project to build out a 2023 Toyota Tundra TRD. Uh, I've got a double cab with a six and a half foot bed as all the rest of the Fishful Tundras have been since 2007. And this particular one uh, is down at Bullhead 4x4 right now. They're doing a bunch of work to its tires and wheels and suspension and front bumper and sidebars, uh, lighting and a bed rug and A&A toppers down at Denver's putting a topper on it. So it's a big week, guys. We've got a lot going on and I'm stuck in the office while the truck's getting work done by people that are smarter than me. And I want to throw out real quick that before we started doing all this work, this isn't a haphazard thing. Uh, just like with a boat or fishing tackle or anything else, uh, I'll spend a bunch of time with it first, figure out what it really needs. I think a lot of people just arbitrarily want to upgrade stuff without knowing why. And in this particular case, I put a bunch of miles on the truck, driving it in the snow, driving it on the dirt roads, uh, towing with it, driving a little bit of interstate, although I don't do a lot of interstate driving. A uh, little bit of interstate driving, some Kirby Mountain Roads, which I do a ton of. I live in the mountains of Colorado. I do a lot of Kirby Road driving. And I have a background real quick in uh, in racing cars and motorcycles, particularly motorcycles, but also I've done some performance car stuff too. And uh, handling and performance are something that I'm tuned into. It doesn't matter if it's my Ranger boat and making sure that engine height is correct and all the jack plate, the engine and, and, and jack plate settings are correct and the steering's bled and precise and centered and, you know, yada, yada, yada. For me, I'm a performance guy. So, any rate, stuck in the office, but that also means I can't tow the boat. <clears throat> and since I can't tow the boat, I can't launch the boat, so I've been doing a whole bunch of bank fishing. Now, I want to point out that that was um, a well-thought-out thing or, or a planned thing. And the reason being is one of the most common criticisms I've taken over the years, over the last decade, and it's common, I get it a lot, is, well, I don't have a boat. I don't, I don't have a you know $80,000 Ranger boat or a fishing boat of any kind. I don't even have a 12-foot Coleman Crawdad or a kayak. And I fish from the bank. And... Therefore, a lot of what I've put out on television and podcasts and radio interviews and everything else has been not necessarily as relevant as it could be to a lot of you folks out there, the fish. And so it occurred to me back in January of this year when we were doing some planning for the year that I really needed to include more content that was bank fishing uh, specific. And of course, it's like everybody else. I grew up bank fishing. I did a ton of it. I didn't have a family with a boat. Uh, didn't, you know, that kind of thing. I didn't grow up in a bass boat like a lot of people did. <clears throat> but as soon as I started getting into dollars of any kind uh, as a young teen, uh, or as a mid middle-aged teen, I should say, I started getting 
antsy about boats. And as soon as I graduated college, the first thing I bought, I got a job uh, right away, right out of college, and the first thing I bought was a boat, a small boat. And I went from there. But it's because everybody wants to get off the bank. And I understand that. A boat for me is a big, giant mobile tackle box. I can take it anywhere I go. You know, it's easier for me to back the truck up to the Ranger boat and drive out of here with it than it is to pack some stuff and go jump in somebody else's boat or to go walk a bank or anything else. The reason being is at any given time in that big boat, there's 20, 25 rods, all the tackle I need to do anything from bluegills to pike. Um, you know, the boat is just, it's an all-inclusive tackle box that gets you around the lake and everything else. Well, as soon as I decide to go bank fishing, the first thing you have to do is simplify everything. Uh, and so that's basically something I've been focusing on is the nuances of bank fishing. So all this spring, even though I have a brand new Ranger boat sitting out here, I've been fishing out of it. Don't get me wrong. I've been fishing out of it a fair bit because I have to prepare for guide trips and, you know, da-da-da-da-da. It's, it's part of my job to keep that boat uh, in the water and being used. Flip side of it is almost every day, every evening anyway, I've been going for at least a short bank walk somewhere around town, uh, either a pond or, or my home reservoir here at Horsetooth or whatever the case might be, I've been doing some bank fishing. And I've been doing that with purpose to really focus on nuances and fundamentals and you know, uh, amending things that I would be doing under the same condition if I was casting the other way. And what I mean by that, that's one of the most fundamental things about bank fishing versus boat fishing that changes a major presentation strategy. And that is if I'm in the boat, I'm casting towards the bank. <clears throat> now, there's a lot of scenarios where, particularly if I'm the only person in the boat, where I'll put the boat literally almost right up against the bank as close as I dare, depending on wind and current conditions, and fish straight ahead or straight behind the boat. And the reason being is I'm trying to be as parallel as possible. But other than that scenario, you're casting it to the bank, even if it's at a 45-degree angle or something else, versus being on the bank and throwing out and then fishing what, what I would call fishing uphill. And so when the boat, you're pretty much always fishing downhill, meaning you throw into shallower water and fish into deeper water. And... In, on the bank, you're always the other way around. You're standing on no water and throwing into deeper water and retrieving uphill. So that's a first fundamental difference that you have to keep in mind because when you're fishing downhill, particularly on something like a diving bait or a sinking bait, it will follow the contour as it comes towards the boat. But if you're fishing uphill from the bank, then your lure may be diabolically opposed to the direction of the bank. So in other words, something like a crankbait, a, let's say a money badger happens to be a current favorite of mine since we started fishing it last year. A little Berkeley money badger is fantastic bait. But like any other crankbait, if I throw it straight out into deep water and retrieve it, it's going to dive and hit the bottom as the bottom comes up the hill towards me. And then it's going to stay planted in the bottom all the way up the hill as I retrieve it. Now, obviously, I can slack it out and let it float a little bit, and I can kind of nurse it up the hill. But at the end of the day, the bait is diving into the bottom as it's coming up to me versus when I'm on the boat and I throw it, it may hit the bottom in the shallow water, but the, the natural diving curve of the bait makes it want to follow the contour of the bottom as opposed to diving straight into it. So the a, a key fundamental difference 
<clears throat> for me, when fishing from the bank, is in almost all scenarios, if I'm throwing any sort of a hard bait, with the exception of a lipless crankbait, any other hard bait I'm going to throw is going to be a floater or a rapid floater even. And just because I can nurse it into the bank as it's coming to me. So if my jerkbait dives into the bottom because it's 10 feet down and 30 feet out off the bank, it hit the bottom for the first time. Well, if I'm throwing a Berkeley hit stick, which floats, then I can give it a little bit of slack line. It'll float up a little bit and I can go back to my retrieve. And the more slack I give it and the more time I give it, the more it will float up. Most of the lures need to have slack to actually rise very quickly because if you don't, the diving lip, the angle of the diving lip will slow the rise. It needs to be able to go backwards, not just straight up. It won't float straight up naturally. The dynamics of the bait are such that it will back itself up. So let's, for instance, say that money badger. If it wasn't tied to a fishing line at all, and I just held it underwater down in the, in the bottom of, say, a fish tank and let it go, it will go backwards and spiral backwards to the top. It won't float straight up. And that's a key thing to keep in mind when you're fishing from the bank is that you, if you want a bait to float, you need to give it a little bit more slack. If you want it to float more, you need to give it even more slack. And the more slack and the more time you give it, the bait will rise up. So my floating hit stick or my money badger or my flicker shad or my dredger or my square bowl or whatever the crankbait is that you're throwing, or the jerk bait, keep in mind that as it dives into the bank that you're standing on, you can slack it out and let it go. I'm not going to fish counterweighted crankbaits, which I commonly do in the boat, uh, where I'll take something like a, an old school crankbait that I want to stay down, particularly in cold water, and I'll put some lead on the bottom of it. And I'll take a floating crankbait and make it rise at like maybe half or a quarter of the rate that it would normally rise at. That's an excellent technique from a boat in cold water situations to really crawl a crankbait. It's also an excellent way to lose lots of them fishing from the bank. So one of the things from the bank that's so important is not snagging a ton, and particularly with hard baits, which tend to be expensive and they're bulky, so you can't carry as many of them on the bank. And so that's a key thing. <clears throat> the other thing, or another thing I should say, about my bank fishing presentations uh, is that they are going to be very much angles always to the bank. It's very rare that I'm going to stand on the bank and throw straight out in front of me, unless I know there's something out there that is going to hold fish, a drop-off, a rock pile, uh, you know, whatever it might be, some piece of cover or structure out there that's going to hold fish then I might do that. I might also do that throwing over something like a known weed bed. If there's a lodia bed or a hydrilla bed or something that I can see, which is common in the gravel quarry ponds around town, uh, we have the elodia grass. It grows nice and thick and lush, and throwing straight out over the top of it's a fantastic way to catch, to catch largemouth. The other possible scenario of throwing straight out off the bank is trout. And the reason being is they're more pelagic in nature. They tend to roam more. So in my home lake, it's very common for trout to be cruising right under the surface or we'll say in the top 10 feet of the water column in the middle of nowhere. They could be over 130 feet of water. They could be up in, in five feet of water. They could be anywhere in between. They really get around. And so if they're out and feeding in a particular bay or particular area where I'm at, well, then I'll just be making random radial casts all around, just lobbing them out there and retrieving baits back. That's commonly for me going to be done with, uh, with a variety of things from a little 
power swimmer, a little two-inch power swimmer that I'll let sink like two feet and then wind it back, something like that. Uh, an inline spinner like a Johnson Minnow Spin, one of the best inline spinners, if not the best inline spinner ever built and unfortunately has been discontinued. Uh, fantastic spinner. I bought lots and lots and lots of them. I was previously was a rooster tail guy. Um, there's lots of good inline spinners, but you can't beat a minnow spin, in my opinion, and unfortunately, they're not produced anymore. If you can find them, by the way, look them up. You can mail me some. They're cheap, and they work real good. Anyway, back to my focus here. My casting angles to the bank are almost always going to be critical, and I've been throwing a jerkbait a bunch in the last couple days because I'm in, I'm in mid-50-degree water. It's a perfect scenario for a jerkbait. Uh, water's fairly clear. I've got the possibility of catching bass, walleyes, white bass, and trout on any given cast. So a jerkbait's as good a tool as any for that, particularly at that water temperature. And so I've been throwing that hit stick. But the important part is I've been throwing it as close down the bank as I can to the point where if I'm on flatter banks, it's tagging the bottom about every few feet. And I'll slack it out, let it float up a foot or two, then keep working it back. If I'm on steeper banks, I can just work it, you know, uh, a little bit more evenly, let's just say, pulling it down, working it like a jerkbait, and then on the pauses, unlike I would do with, say, a stunner or a cutter, which are suspending jerkbaits, on the pauses with the hit stick, I'm holding the line tight. So in the real world, it's not a perfect pause. If that line is tight, that bait is ever so try slowly trying to come towards you, um, and, and basically, you're fighting the resistance of the water in, on the bill of the bait. So in other words, the diving bill wants it to go backwards by me hold, as it rises. By me holding the line tight, that keeps it from going backwards. And basically, I can get the bait to suspend just a little bit in the water calm better than it would if I give it slack line. And so that's a really key thing. And the steeper the bank is, the more parallel to the bank I'm throwing, which would be the case for any of my bank fishing stuff is I'd really want to be as parallel as possible. The reason being is that keeps your bait in the strike zone as long as possible. So if your fish are suspended out off the bank or something like that, well, then maybe it's not as important. But the bass, the walleyes, and the white bass are all going to be bank runners in my area, uh, particularly at this time of year. And therefore, I am going to fish very parallel to the bank. So that's one of the things I will tell you as a bank guy. Don't just walk down, lob one out in the middle, and hope for the best because you that is a complete falsity that all the big ones live out in the middle. <laughs> That's just not the case. So the riparian uh, habitats and the littoral zone of the lake, where they come together. In other words, the shoreline is where a, the most food and the most cover and all that occurs. So keep that in mind as well. <clears throat> Another thing, I, I'm a jig guy. You guys, if you're fans, you know I jig a lot, particularly finesse jig. An eight ounce jig with a three inch goat minnow or a tube jig, a two and a half inch power tube or a power swimmer, or uh, any one of a bajillion things could go on a, on a finesse jig head. That's one of my most bread and butter techniques, that and jerk baiting. And when I do that from the bank, uh, I'm, I do it slightly different. I still work my angles. I still want bottom contact with my bait. I tend to use where I would use an eighth ounce weight uh, in the boat, I might use a 16th ounce weight uh, in, the, uh, in the bank to, to keep my fall rate down and to make my bait a little less snaggy. So if it's calm out and I can get away with a real small jig head, I will. And I'll just fish more slowly and more methodically with it, meaning I'll keep it down on the, in the water column the same. The heavier the jig head is, 
the more you have to work a bait to keep it up off the bottom, right? And and so something like a power swimmer with it, which has a boot tail or a paddle tail on it, or even a grub like a power grub, you know, like a classic Mister Twister shape. Uh, the the more you retrieve it, the more it will come up in the water column. And the heavier it is, the more you have to retrieve it to make that happen. Conversely, if I take that same, say, three-inch power grub, and I downsize it from an eighth-ounce jig head to a sixteenth-ounce jig head. Now it swims very slowly to the bottom. It's a very methodical bait, and I have to fish it much slower to keep it near the bottom, which is most commonly where I want my jig. It's somewhere, say, in the bottom two feet of the water column a lot of the time. Uh, so if that's the case, then a lighter weight will get help me get away with that. Uh, you guys know I'm a big fan of three-inch gold minnow. It's my number one bait of all time. It's it's almost impossible to beat in a lot, a lot, a lot of scenarios for me. Uh, but I don't throw it as much from the bank because that bait dives very quickly. There's no resistance in the water column. So an eighth-ounce jig head or a quarter-ounce jig head or a sixteenth-ounce jig head with a gold minnow on it will dive almost straight down uh, to the bottom unless you rig your minnow crooked and make it spiral, and which is not something I advocate. If you want something to spiral, put a tube jig on. But uh, but at any rate, the, I don't throw it from the bank because it tends to be snaggier. I don't have that swimming resistance that it will slow the fall rate just a little bit. So if, if it's windy enough, I need an eighth ounce jig head, I'm gonna put something with a boot tail on it or a curl tail or something like that, such that the resistance of the soft plastic body as it moves through the water column negates some of the weight of the jig head and otherwise it becomes a snagging issue. Now I wanna throw this out real quick. Where I fish predominantly is in Colorado, in the Mountain West, which means rock. Lots and lots of rock. It is the Rocky Mountains. So rock tends to be very, very snaggy. Uh, if you happen to live in an area where you're fishing a gravel bottom and snagging is not an issue, some of this may go out the window. But I know a lot of my viewers and listeners are from Western areas and rocks are an issue. And also, if you're a person that likes to fish dams, which I'm a giant advocate of, rock dams, riprap dams, riprap, you know, current breaks, jetties, uh, anything like that, broken rock, fantastic. Same scenario applies, though, extremely snaggy. Uh, we've got a, a lake here in Denver called Chatfield Reservoir that a lot of people fish, one of the most popular fisheries in Colorado. Also, one of the snaggiest places I've ever been as far as the dam face goes for catching jig heads. I mean, you can row through jig heads there. So the same scenario, just for the record, would apply in a boat. Lighten your jig, says, jig head up just a little bit or make sure that the body you're using has a boot tail or a curl tail and that will help you with your snagging a little bit. Obviously, controlling slack line, uh, rod position, line watching, all of that comes into play whether I'm on the bank or in the boat. That is not relevant. That is relevant to being a good angler in general. So if you have an open bale, I don't care if you have a 16-ounce jig and a 5-inch paddle tail on it, it's still going to snag if you don't pay attention to slack line and control it. So you got to keep those, those things in mind. But at the end of the day, I just generally will lighten up the jig head a little bit and put some sort of a boot tail on it or a or swim tail, and that's typically what I'm going to do if I'm going to jig from the bank. And I do a lot of jigging from the bank. <clears throat> Another bait that I like to throw, particularly in the wind from the bank, and this is all multi-species stuff, guys. It doesn't matter if I'm talking largemouth, I'm talking trout, I'm talking pike, I'm talking walleyes, white bass, wipers, whatever. If I'm on the bank and the wind's blowing, 
I'm going to go where the wind's blowing into the bank if possible or at a 45 degree angle down the bank would be even better. Uh, thus for creating current rips down the bank. If I get a big strong wind, and we have had a lot of wind this spring in Colorado, it has been an absolute nightmare to deal with. And again, today we've got a bunch of wind. Uh, if you can get where the wind's blowing 45 degrees down a bank that's got some decent cover on it, you're going to get all kinds of current uh, that's coming down that bank, creating all kinds of swirling stuff. And if you're starting to get to the point where foam lines are showing up, you're in the hunt to catch all kinds of stuff. And in that scenario, I will throw a lipless crankbait. Uh, for me, that's a Warpig. Uh, could be any one of a bajillion brands, a Vibe, a Rattletrap. Uh, I mean, everybody, man, every manufacturer out there makes a, a lipless crankbait of some sort. I like the Warpig because it's bottom-weighted. It's very small profile for a given weight, and it casts like an absolute dream. When I say it's bottom-weighted, it sinks vertically, meaning it doesn't roll over to one side or keel out it literally has got enough weight in the bottom that it sinks more like you would expect out of a blade bait than a hard bait it's a great bait in the wind and i make big long throws with it and i'll throw 45 degree angles to the bank or parallel to the bank or out depending on what what my scenario is like we already touched on and it's a really good bait in that case it is i am allowing the bait not to sink very much because if i do the only way I can recover that depth is to lift the rod trip up and you know reel for all your worth or whatever. So it's important that if you're going to throw the lipless crankbait, you don't let it get too deep in the first place because, again, you don't have any way to get it back high in the water column short of just retrieving it for all your worth, and that's going to mess up your presentation. So I'll count it down depending on the scenario, uh, how steep the bank is, how, you know, how deep I expect the fish are, what's out there. Uh, in terms of out that I'm throwing out around or over and and I'll count it down a little bit and then I'll begin my retrieve from there. Uh, with that bait, same thing with a, with a swim jig or a lot of other things that I would throw and retrieve, I will steer it a ton with the rod. And you wouldn't think that it'd matter much, but it really does. If you've got a seven foot rod and you've got it pointed say 90 degrees to your left while you're retrieving it and you just keep retrieving, don't do anything else, just keep winding your lipless crankbait, but you swing that rod tip all the way to 90 degrees to your right, that bait's gonna make a distinct turn out there and those turns will trigger bites for you. So you may see me, if you watch video of me fishing one of those, I may be, my rod tip may be going back and forth a lot, like every few seconds it'll move to the other side. Basically, I'm just trying to keep that bait from going, you know, 50 yards in a straight line. It's it just does nothing in nature swims 50 yards in a straight line. If you're a troller, you probably know that uh, a lot of your bites come on turns. Those turns are going to change the speed of the lure, possibly the depth of the lure, and for sure the direction of the lure. So the same thing happens by steering a bait from the bank. So I will do a lot of that, throw angles and steer the bait a ton, trying to mix up my presentation a whole bunch. Couple other key things I've been doing from the bank that have mattered a lot. <clears throat> uh, one, for me, the bank is for sure a braided line scenario. And if I can get away with no leader with whatever lure it is, I'm going to do it. And here's why. I like the leader for a lot of reasons. The most common reason I have a braid leader combo on something like a hard bait is to keep the braided line away from the treble hooks. Okay, but and that's because when you tumble, when you throw bait in the air and it tumbles, it'll catch the braided line and it'll tie the craziest knot you've ever seen. If you're a good caster and you keep a little bit of tension on the spool when you cast, the bait will fly straight away from you. Dan Spangler, the senior uh, hard bait designer for Berkeley, spends a lot of effort to make sure a bait can be tail weighted or have a casting system in the bait 
counterweighting system so that it will cast well and not tumble in the air. If you think about an old school Smithwick Rogue, particularly the Spoonbill Rogues, it's almost impossible to cast those things in a straight line. They don't have any weighting system to them. They're one of the worst casting baits of all time. Great old bait, they just don't cast worth the crap. Well, a modern jerk bait like Dan Designs will cast like a dream, especially if you keep a little tiny bit of tension on the spool. But the braided line keeps uh, will tangle up really bad if you let a bait tumble. The other thing a braided line will do is if you're running something like a jerk bait and you're jerking it hard, you know where you're really snapping the bait aggressively and it's and it's turning around on itself, which you really want them to do in a lot of cases, particularly in warmer water. Well, then it's going to catch the braid on its own and underwater and you just don't want that to happen so a stiff fluorocarbon leader helps the other possibility of a stiff fluorocarbon leader is that it will prevent a little bit of abrasion on the front of the bait which can be important when it comes to fish with teeth or sharp gill covers because braid doesn't like sharp stuff uh, so it can be a little bit of abrasion and then of course the obvious one is visibility to keep fish from seeing a bait well if i'm fishing from the bank unless i need that leader for visibility uh, I'm going to fish without it, and I'm going to palomar or double palomar knot straight off to my bait. And the reason I'm going to do that is, in a lot of the cases, a little bit of extra tensile strength in your presentation, in other words, pointing the rod straight at whatever you happen to snag, and pull backwards. Not We're not loading the rod. We're not bending the rod. We're pointing the rod straight at it, take up all the slack you can, clamp down on the spool with your hand, and pull in a straight line. It's very difficult to break braided line doing that, particularly like 15-pound braid. It, it, the tensile strength is incredible. So if you hook a small tree limb, uh, you throw it across the creek into some something on the far bank, even rolling rocks up to pretty good size. I rolled a rock the other day, the better part of the size of, of a Frisbee uh, that I could see my bait had buried in. And I pointed the rod straight at it. It was in a crevice between the two rocks. I pulled and it moved that rock enough to get my bait back. Or you will have enough tensile strength to break hooks or straighten hooks. And they're a lot cheaper to replace than whole baits. The fluorocarbon leader, whether I like to admit it or not, adds an extra knot and an extra potential for breaking. And tensile strength on braid is just phenomenal. And so that's why I will use no leader a lot of times if I'm worried about snagging. If I'm throwing uh, you know, baits around wood cover uh, or around grass vegetation, another one, that Elodia grass I talked about earlier, uh, straight braid, because if the bait gets down in that stuff, I can pull it out with plenty of tensile strength and, and have one less knot to worry about failing. Uh, in my system. So uh, another weakness. And I'm, as if you're, if you've paid attention to our content ever, I'm a fan of simple, 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 simple. The less knots, the less tackle you have, the less swivels and snaps and crap you have in your presentation uh, to mess you up. The A, the more easy your rig is. B, the less expensive your rig is. And C, in my experience, the more fish you catch, the less time you spend messing with your rig. So uh, again, straight braid in a lot of scenarios on the, on the bank. Another scenario from the bank that I keep in mind all the time is I don't bring my really high-end rods and reels. <clears throat> I dearly love fishing with my Xenon combos. It's my favorite combo. It's my favorite finesse combo. And Ava Garcia Xenon with a Xenon reel is an incredible rod and reel. It stays in the boat. It's not going on the bank. And the reason being is if I need to land fish, I might have to set my rod down in the dirt or whatever. Uh, I have more chance of, of breaking a rod tip or having you know anything like that. There's, at the end of the day, it's just more hard on fishing tackle to be 
on the bank. You have a chance of getting sand in your stuff to ding a rod somewhere. And I mean just ding it. You don't have to do much to a fishing rod to ruin it. You just got to scratch it. You put a good scratch on the side of a good quality graphite rod, it's going to break. The next time you set the hook and you're not going to understand why, you're going to think the fish broke it. And the reality was you scratched it on a rock because you leaned it on something abrasive and it just all it did was mess up the, the coating on the outside of the rod. And that's all it takes to break them in a lot of cases. They won't break right then, they'll break later, but that's where they'll break. So I don't bring my high-end stuff. So for me, if I'm on the bank, I bring my middle-end stuff. So I'm bringing all of my Veritas rods. Uh, You know, I'll bring my bread and butter reels like Revo SXs. So it's not cheap tackle, don't get me wrong. I still want quality tackle to match my skills. But I'm not bringing a you know $500 combo uh, to go bank fishing because of the possibility of damaging it. So that's a key thing right there. Uh, I like to carry all my stuff in a backpack if at all possible, depending on how much stuff I'm carrying. Um, I keep it very, very simple. And if I'm walking on my home lake, the last couple days I've been walking banks around my home lake, I'm literally carrying one lure and I'm carrying one spare lure with me in case I break that one off for some reason or damage it somehow. That's all I'm carrying. I'm literally carrying two lures, and uh, and I haven't retied yet. So I've actually been keeping the same lure. I've been retying, but not changing lures. Uh, I've been carrying one lure. I keep it very simple from the bank. Part of the charm for me on the bank is I'm not there to carry thirty rods and reels and you know a bunch of tackle and try to. I'm there to keep it simple. Focus on fundamentals. The as a general rule, you're not going to cover as much water. So being very uh, thorough with the water you have can be really important. Uh, if I'm dead set on fishing hard, I'll carry two rods. One of them will be the, the aforementioned jerkbait that I've been throwing, like the floating hit stick, which I've been throwing a ton of because we have cold water. The second rod will be a jig rod. And with those two, I can cover whatever I need to cover, steep banks, flat banks, uh, whatever, breezy, calm. Uh, whatever, it doesn't matter. I can cover with just those two rods. And because I'm fishing very thoroughly, I'll pull up to an area, I'll throw the jerkbait around a bunch or the lipless crankbait or whatever that might be, and then I'll mop up with the jig before I move. Because typically those hard baits will not get every fish in the area to bite, but they may draw fish to you, which is a very common scenario for us from the bank. And uh, and I'll throw you one, one quick little tidbit uh, along those lines. Camera guy Tim Farnsworth, one of my closest friends, He's, he likes to fly fish uh, in a lot of cases. Don't get me wrong, he's a great spin fisher, conventional tackle guy, fantastic conventional tackle guy, but he also likes to fly fish, same as I do at times. We will work together. I'll throw a spoon on a spinning rod, retrieve that spoon to the bank, and whenever the spoon gets within range of his cast, each cast, he'll just throw his fly out behind it and strip it in behind my spoon. What happens is he catches more fish than I do. The spoon draws trout. They love to follow that thing, but they don't always bite it. A percentage of them bite it, which is great, but a a, a fair bit of them are just curious and will follow it. Well, he'll mop up with that fly because they'll be following that spoon. They'll see the fly and he'll catch them. So that's the same scenario that I can oftentimes do with the jerk bait or whatever. So I'll keep the the jig rod leaned up, ready to throw. And if I do get follows on the jerk bait, I'll throw the jig right behind it and catch them in very, very common scenarios. But because I'm on the bank and I'm not covering a lot of ground, I'm going to be very, very thorough and make sure I can catch as many fish as I can that are right around where I'm at. Uh, we've done whole bank fishing podcast before I talk about being sneaky and all that. All of that definitely applies no matter what. If you're rolling rocks around, anything like that, you're going to potentially 
uh, cause yourself problems. So you do want to be quiet. You want to be sneaky. Uh, keep your profile in check. I wear natural colored clothes, something that's not going to pop hard against the trees in the background that I'm uh, up against me. I'll try to wear some kind of drab colored clothes versus you know a white shirt or bright yellow shirt, something like that, that's really going to get fish's attention. Because keep in mind, the shallower they are, the better their visibility is or the wider range of visibility they have based on the... the um, excuse me, the light waves as they enter the water, the refraction of the light. So they can see better, see you easier. So I wear drab colors on the bank for sure. And lastly, I'll throw this out there, sunglasses, as far as I'm concerned, my Costas are one of my most important tools, especially from the bank. Because now I need to be able to see potential snagging hazards, uh, which are in the water right around me. I want to be as thorough as I can as far as seeing whatever cover. I'm looking into shallow water all the time because I'm standing on the bank. So I have an opportunity to see things that will give me clues. Bait fish moving around, crayfish, uh, you know, emergent vegetation, anything like that. All stuff that I can see. Obviously, we need to be able to see our line. We already said the fundamentals still apply. So line watching applies a lot. Uh, and you tend to be very flat to the water as opposed to a raised platform in the boat. So the more glare you can cut, the better you can see in terms of your line floating on the surface out there or whatever else. So my polarized glasses, I'm a Costa guy, have been since 2000. I think 2000 realistically, uh, exclusively, started wearing them in college well before that. So it, I'm a Costa guy for that reason. And the big thing is I use them a lot uh, to help me catch fish, particularly from the bank. So guys, we've already gone long with this one and I could go on for days because I'm having a great time bank fishing right now, which is kind of funny considering I own, what, four boats <laughs> and I'm having a great time purposely bank fishing. So I hope you do as well. I hope you're enjoying the content. If you guys have questions, let me know. Chat at fishfulthinker.com. If you want to book a guided fishing trip, we do those in a 21 foot uh, 2023 Ranger Z521R. Fantastic boat. We'd love to take you on a guide trip. You can check that out at fishfulthinker.com and uh, and we can get you out on a guided fishing trip. Of course, join the conversation on social media at fishfulthinker, uh, which is going to be on Facebook, uh, Instagram, and a little bit of TikTok. TikTok, for whatever reason, has not liked me as an angler and they've pulled several of my videos down for violence, which is kind of hilarious because I hooked myself with a fish hook, told, did a video how to pull it out, and TikTok pulled it down because it was violent, uh, which is kind of funny. But at any rate, join our conversation on social media. I appreciate that very much. And um, also this podcast, it's a labor of love. Please subscribe wherever you're at. So appreciate you tuning in. This has been Fishful Thinker, the podcast. <laughs>